Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I walk with the key to hell. Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit us online at epiphanyligonier.org. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me, fall afresh on everyone here today, and fall afresh on your church, that the gospel may be fully proclaimed in our time. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I've often wondered what the most successful sermon ever preached would be. You know, and, and that seems like it's insider baseball after all, because I'm a pastor and I do this for a living. So maybe that question doesn't immediately spark your curiosity, but it does spark mine. And in terms of, you know, conversions, people converted as a result of a sermon, at least, you know, people walking away from hearing a sermon with a change of heart about matters of, of faith. You know, a contender for the most successful sermon ever preached was a sermon preached 73 years ago in the year 1949. And it was the first tent revival that Billy Graham ever preached. It was in Los Angeles. It was in 1949. And he had planned to preach this revival service over a course of maybe three weeks. But the the big tent revival uh, in downtown Los Angeles was so popular, he extended it out to eight weeks. And over the course of eight weeks, something like 350,000 people came to hear the 30-year-old Billy Graham preach about repentance about Jesus, preach about how the gospel was related to the advent of nuclear weapons, uh, to, preach, uh, to preach about trauma after World War II for all the soldiers who had come back from the war, and to preach about Cold War tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, uh, to preach about suburban ennui, all of the things that were happening in 1949. Uh, Billy Graham was preaching and connecting the gospel uh, of Jesus' death and resurrection to the people of his day. And he said things at this uh, revival meeting like, I do not believe that any man can solve the problems of life without Jesus Christ. And he would say things like, there are tremendous marital problems, there are physical problems, there are financial problems, there are problems of sin and habit that cannot be solved outside the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you trusted Christ Jesus as your savior? And the result of that first crusade I'm telling you about right now, that's what they called it, the Crusades, right? Uh, the, the first Billy Graham crusade, the result was that 3,000 people uh, made decisions to become Christians as a result of that crusade, which that's way more than any number of people have come to a saving faith as a result of my preaching. So I don't, you know, I, there's no way I can, I can sort of compare the work that's going on here to what happened with Billy Graham, but it does make me feel a little bit better that Billy Graham's most notable and famous crusade 
had about a 1% conversion rate. <laughs> that, that makes me feel a little bit better for all the times that I've preached and spoken about Jesus to other people and they haven't responded. Because, you know, it is a silly question. I, I'm sort of dancing around it here, right? The most successful sermon ever preached. Uh, and that crusade was greatest so far as it goes. But I want to talk to you today about one sermon that was uh, maybe even more successful than Billy Graham's Los Angeles crusade in 1949. And we're going to study it today because it's my candidate for the most successful sermon ever preached. And it's one that uh, the one that Peter preaches in our reading today from Acts chapter 2, a sermon that many consider to be the first Christian sermon ever preached. And so I want to do that today. It's Pentecost Sunday. So let's read the original Pentecost sermon that Peter preaches and see what we can see. And again, this feels like insider baseball in some degree, but I want to say that um, what I hope to convince you of today is that this isn't inside baseball because all of us are both proclaimers and we have things proclaimed to us. Even though you're not a Sunday preacher, that doesn't mean a study of this sermon is going to leave you high and dry, because I think you're a preacher, too, in some degree. Because you preach when you talk about Jesus with your family and friends, or you preach when you talk about, you know, um, the new car that you bought that was so great, and you just want to recommend it to everyone. Um, you preach to yourself whenever you remind yourself that God is good, he's going to help you get through the day and whatever trials you're working through. Uh, but you also preach to yourself when you um, uh, engage in uh, self-loathing and self-hatred or arrogance or pride to help get you through that same hard day. You hear preaching when a loving Christian comes to you uh, alongside you in the midst of a difficult circumstance to remind you of God's love uh, and how it's there and that's going to get you through a dark part in your life. But you also hear preaching uh, when the television advertisements tell you the good news of the new facial cream. That uh, they proclaim uh, the good news of the latest, um, you know, ShamWow, or the good news of the latest uh, breakfast cereal. And so even though I preach sermons on Sunday, you and I, we are all preachers in some degree, and we preach to ourselves, and we preach to others, we preach to those we love, and we all receive preaching on a regular basis. We hear it at church, but we hear it on the television, and from our friends, and from our co-workers, and so the question I hope to address today is, what exactly is it that we preach when we preach to one another? And so let's set the stage for Peter's sermon today, possibly the best sermon ever preached. Um, at this point in Bible uh, story timeline, at this point in the Bible storyline, Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's appeared over the course of about 40 days to his disciples. We don't know exactly what Jesus was doing during that period. Uh, the, the, the Bible sort of ends there and picks up about 40 days later. But across the span of 40 days, the, the risen Jesus appears to his disciples and to his followers. And presumably, from what we do know, he's teaching and he's preaching. And he's telling them how to um, best understand the scripture. And he's offering forgiveness of sins. But after 40 days or so, the risen Jesus ascends to heaven, right? And, and you can hear him talk about this. Jesus knows that the most effective way to teach and preach and, and heal is not to be an embodied person with two legs, two arms, and a belly button, <laughs> right? Embodied people are very limited. They're limited in their geography. They're limited in the loudness of their voice. They're limited in how many people can talk at, you know, they can talk with at one time. And so Jesus ascends to heaven. Like a holy professional wrestler, he tag teams out with God the Holy Spirit. 
who comes down to earth in a reading today and causes a whole dramatic scene. And so as the followers of Jesus, uh, missing their embodied Jesus, are gathered together in prayer, asking God what the next move is for their ministry, the Holy Spirit arrives. A wind picks up and begins to blow. Uh, Christians are enveloped in a flame of light that doesn't seem to hurt them. They are on fire but not consumed as tongues of flame come down onto them. They are compelled to leave their second floor apartment in Jerusalem and go into the streets and talk about Jesus and praise his name together. And people just happen to be, because there's a feast happening that day, people are in town from all over the world. They're hearing these words in their, in their like heart languages, languages they learned as children. So Peter is speaking in, in, in about Jesus in, in Greek, probably, or Hebrew, whatever his sort of native language is. But the guy traveling in town from Ethiopia hears Peter's words, and it's like he's hearing Peter speak in his native language. It's this wild speaking in tongues miracle, and it's this whole scene. And people are confused. Their best guess as to what's happening is that these Christians who believe in Jesus' resurrection, they're all drunk. <laughs> One person supposes they're all drunk. Um, because of all the sort of ecstatic proclamations of God's doing that's happening in the streets at, early in the morning. And in the midst of this all, Peter steps forward to say, no, we are not drunk. <laughs> but he steps forward with a sermon to preach about what is happening in this wild and raucous scene. And so that's what's happening. Um, the, the Holy Spirit has arrived, tag-teaming out with Jesus. And now the, the work of God is not limited to, to, to two feet with two sandals and two eyes and a mouth. But the work of God is 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 everywhere in every Christian uh, and uh, moving ahead across the globe through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is going to preach a sermon that explains all of this, and we might divide it into three parts. The first part is this. Peter addresses the context of the scene. He arrives, uh, he, he addresses the fact that the Holy Spirit has arrived and he links it to what the prophet Joel said back in the Old Testament, right? That's Joel chapter 2, and, and Joel says, among other things, that in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Because they knew, the people of Israel knew, that the Holy Spirit showed up on occasion when Israel was kind of desperate and in times of need. So the Holy Spirit would speak through the prophets. The Holy Spirit would show up and bless leaders from time to time. But these tended to be sort of temporary moments that sort of the Holy Spirit popped up and was gone. But now the Holy Spirit's mission has changed. The Holy Spirit is available to everyone at any time through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. And this was part of God's plan from the beginning. That's the first thing that Peter mentions in the first part of his reading, right? That um, if, looking back at the prophet Joel, this is what was foretold. The Holy Spirit is here now. The second thing that Peter preaches, the second part of his sermon, is Peter addresses the person of Jesus, specifically his death and his resurrection and his lordship and his judgment, his ability to judge. And he doesn't pull punches at all in this. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
Now remember, not everybody at that time in Judaism believed in the resurrection of the dead. There was that group called the Sadducees you may have heard of. They're in the Bible. They're sort of a denomination of Judaism, and they said, nope, when you're gone, you're gone. Uh, no resurrection from the dead. And this was, you know, theological infighting in the day. Everyone was fighting, like, is there resurrection about the dead? Is there not? What do we do? But Peter stakes his claim and says, look, Jesus has risen. It's not up for debate anymore. People have seen him. Lots of people have seen him. And the world is completely different now. And he uses David as this counterexample. He, he quotes from one of David's Psalms to prove the resurrection. And he's like, David's dead, y'all. But Jesus is not. And that means Jesus is a better king, a better Lord than David. And he goes on to say, Let all the house of Israel therefore know that for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so the idea here is that Jesus is this foretold figure so clearly mentioned in the Old Testament. One who is a great judge, one who's going to come and fix the world. Uh, he is eternal. He is the arbiter of right and wrong. He is God's champion who is going to fix the world that is broken. He is the Lord that King David spoke of when he wrote Psalms. And he said, the Lord said to my Lord, this Jesus figure, right, is the uh, he is he is death and resurrection and he's going to come back and fix the world because God has risen him up in all of his virtue to be the judge of the world. So that's what Peter says. And then finally there's a third thing, a call to action um once the the um once everything once he explains what's happening, it's Pentecost and the Holy Spirit's here. And then he talks about Jesus's death and resurrection and his coming again to to fix the world and his lordship. Um, Peter switched gears to say, um, to give uh, an action plan of sorts. Peter switches gears to say, uh, to help everyone who's been cut by the heart at this news that they killed Jesus. Um, there's, there's good news for them, in fact. So the text picks up and the text says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so he ends with an action step, a call to faith, right? He says, you know, repent to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And the word repent, of course, is a very religious word. It's a very, oh, yes, very serious religious word. And I'm sure you've heard it before from, you know, evangelists with bull horns. And you've heard it before or seen it on, you know, signs on the rural highway billboards and things of that sort. Um, but it's a word that does have a very powerful meaning in the original language, even though it's kind of lost its meaning at this point for us. In Greek, uh, the word for um, the word for for uh, repent is metanoia, uh, which is a word that means to kind of have a change of heart. Uh, it, it means to have a change of mind, uh, but, but really it means to have a change of heart, a change of understanding about the way that life is and the way that um, anybody might um, understand themselves. And in Hebrew, the Greek, in Hebrew, the word for repent is linked with the word return, as in you have strayed away from that which is true and good. You have wandered off the path and so return and turn back to me. 
And so Peter is offering an invitation to the audience. He says this, you have incorrectly assessed the reality of just who Jesus is and what he has accomplished, and you have screwed up big time. But take this opportunity, friends, to have a change of heart about your opinion of Jesus. Apologize to God for the mistake of killing him, and you'll be forgiven, and you'll be given access to the Holy Spirit. You and your families will be reunited with God forever. And that really is the sermon in a nutshell, right? It's like, here's Pentecost. Here's the thing that's happened. Uh, you have incorrectly assessed the reality of who Jesus is, so I'm going to correct you on that. Now, if you apologize to God, you'll be forgiven, and you'll have access to the Holy Spirit, and everything will be great for you. And the result, of course, is we have 3,000 baptisms from a single, unprepared, impromptu sermon preached on a nondescript morning at 9 o'clock that started out as an accusation that those guys are drunk, <laughs> right? I mean, you can't go, uh, it takes a very powerful work of the Holy Spirit for a opportunity for evangelism to start off with like, I think those guys are drunk to being like, I'm getting baptized and believing Jesus rose from the dead, right? And you know, even though Billy Graham had this very successful tent ministry, you know, it took Billy Graham eight weeks to replicate the kind of success that Peter pulls off impromptu 9 a.m. in the morning on a weekday without even really trying. And so I'm joking, of course, right? We know the Holy Spirit was at work in a mighty and powerful way in Peter's sermon, and that was not really his doing per se. Um, Peter was less of the captain and more of the vessel, you know? But I, I do want us to, to, to maybe make a cognitive shift today. I want us to undergo our own internal repentance of sorts. Because, again, as I said before, to some degree, we are all preachers. Uh, we are all proclaiming things to ourselves in one context or another. A message that defines our life and just how we should be operating. For example, some of this in our some of us in our room today uh, proclaim a message like this. And we think to ourselves... I cannot mess up because if I do, I'm a bad person. My job and my family and my friends will be disappointed in me and hate me if I screw up at the least. To say nothing about God who will certainly hate me if I mess up. So I cannot mess up ever, ever, ever because my entire life and everything I love is on the line. Some of you think like that. And that's what you preach to, sell, you, to yourself when the going gets tough. And what it does is it doesn't actually inspire you to do better. It only makes you more anxious and afraid when you think like that, doesn't it? Some of you preach an anxiety message to yourself, and some of you preach a message that sounds like this. Uh, you preach a message that says, I have to do this work. If I don't do this task, nobody will get it done. Nobody can do this but me. So I must continue to give and give and give of myself, of my resources, of my time and my energy until this task is complete. And I have to get all the tasks complete because if it doesn't get done, then no one's going to do it and it has to get done. And you have this gospel of getting it done, this gospel of being uh, perfect in the gospel of, of sacrificing yourself for the task in front of you. And so when life gets hard, you preach that message to yourself. But what's going to happen is somewhere along the line, you're going to crash and burn and the people around you are going to crash and burn because there's just too much to do and you can't actually do it on your own. So that sort of, you know, I think I can positive attitude, I, I got to do it and get it done kind of thing. Yeah, it might work for a while, but if you continually preaching it to yourself, you're going to crash and you're going to burn and you're going to um, alienate people all around you. You'll be lonesome and you'll sort of become a failure. And so that's what that message is about. And some of you are going to preach a message that sounds like this. Uh, your message will say, you know, I'm a pretty awesome person. I'm the best. I'm, I'm really educated and well-read and I've lived a successful life. Uh, so therefore, anyone who disagrees with me needs to be corrected because, well, they're wrong and I'm right. And I can prove that by my intelligence and the way I live my life. 
And when people become, uh, when people come to a disagreement then with you, you don't just speak your piece, but you proclaim your own brilliance. And the disagreement is amplified and injected with per, per, uh, personal resentments. And so you start losing friends left and right. And all of a sudden you're wondering why nobody wants to come hang out with you anymore because you have bought into a message of, of arrogance and a message of sort of very high self-esteem. You know what's very interesting? Narcissists have some of the highest self-esteem you'll ever run into. And so you, you've bought into this sort of high self-esteem, I'm the best thing, and you are uh, unprepared to be wrong, which inevitably happens to all of us. And some of you preach a message that goes like this. I'm a good person. I do these things on a regular basis. I may not be perfect, but I'm not as bad as those people. I go to church. I help the poor. I raised good kids. And I really hope that those good works balance out the handful of terrible things that I did in my past and that if anyone noticed or found out about them, I would just die. And so outwardly, you live this fine and upright life, but you're also living in constant fear. You know, if people only knew about what's really going on in my life. And if people only knew uh, what was what happened to my past and what I've done before, then everything would fall apart. And if that's how you live your life, uh, what's gonna happen is everyone will think really high of you. And you're gonna have lots of friends, but you're never gonna have any deep and meaningful relationships because you're always on guard that the bad things will get out. And so everyone will be friendly to you, but they'll be at an arm's distance and you'll be end up being sort of lonely and um, separated from the rest of the world and uh, crushed under the weight of your own guilt and shame. I, I don't know what message you preach to yourself, but you do preach yourself messages nonetheless, right? The vast majority of these things we preach to ourselves, our mantras, our neuroses, our deeply held convictions, the vast majority of them, friends, are not good news. Most of us live in terror of receiving bad news, or we live in the nihilism of not believing good news actually exists. And so the messages we preach to ourselves reflect a need to try harder, do better, or, and, and be smarter and succeed. On the one hand, that's what they are. On the other hand, they're messages of self-loathing and, and, and hatred. Uh, of, of self-belittling and low self-esteem, where we um, sort of berate ourselves worse than any person actually deserves to be berated. Which is to say, I wonder how your life m maybe could be different if you preached the gospel to yourself. What if instead of preaching to yourself that you must be strong, or you must be brave, or you must be lovable, or you must be right. What if you preach Peter's sermon to yourself? Jesus died and rose again. This is God's plan from the beginning. He's coming to fix the world. And so I should have a change of heart about my current situation in light of this reality. What would it look like for you to fixate yourself on the love of God for sinners when life gets impossible, instead of focusing on the, the outcomes being a success or a failure for yourself? What would it look like to preach the gospel given from God Almighty to yourself, instead of whatever bootstrapping or self-loathing or fear-inducing thing that hasn't brought you any good news, but you cling to it anyway? What would it look like um, to preach a different message to yourself? Uh, one that wasn't dependent on your own striving or success, but on what God has done for you as a token of his love and affection. And so as we close this morning, I want to encourage uh, you to adopt a bit of divine plagiarism. Uh, I want to encourage you to, to adopt some divine plagiarism. You know, 99% of the, the time copying someone else's work and presenting it as your own, that's a bad idea. You know, you can lose your job for that. Um, Christians don't do that, though. In this one case, at the very least this one case, I want to encourage you to plagiarize uh, Peter's sermon. 
I want you to, to, I encourage you to plagiarize Peter's sermon. Preach Jesus' death and resurrection and the forgiveness of sins and the promise of the world uh, to come, his promise of the world to come. Preach all that to yourself in whatever circumstance you are in. Preach it to others, let others preach it to you. Because this message is uniquely good news. Because what we see in our reading today is that in some mystical way, this proclamation of Jesus' death and resurrection is linked to the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the thing that changes hearts and minds. It is good news from outside of us that makes a difference. And, and we know this because if you keep reading in the book of Acts after where we left off today in the bulletins, the following passage in Acts tells us that um, after all 3,000 of these new Christians are baptized, things change dramatically for the better in this new assembly of people who believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead. People begin to be supremely generous with their money, helping each other when they're in need. People begin to be supremely generous with their property, sharing, you know, sharing tools in their garage with one another, you know, um, giving each other hand-me-downs for their kids. Some of them even sell their houses and use the proceeds and give them to the church. People were feasting together and praying together and worshiping together and studying God's word together. It's a little slice of heaven that blossoms right in the heart of Jerusalem about 50 days after the worst day in history. And the text says that the members of this community, their hearts were glad and they were in awe at the community taking shape around them. And day by day, the Lord added to their number. And it's the Holy Spirit who guides Peter to preach this message today. And it's the Holy Spirit that uses this message to save and redeem the world. And so the work of the Holy Spirit, friends, I think seems to go hand in hand with the proclamation of the Christian gospel. And so when life gets hard and when life is good too, when we talk to others and when we have others talk to us, I want to why let us proclaim to all what has been proclaimed now for 2,000 years and what I will now proclaim to you one last time before our sermon concludes. Friends, I tell you today that Jesus died and rose again. He's coming back to fix the world. And for anyone who has a change of heart about their role in the world in light of this news, there is forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit waiting there for you. In Jesus' name, amen. On Friday, a Pennsylvania.